this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today we're speaking with Ian Burroughs about his book, Shakespeare for Snowflakes, published by Zero Books. This book explores the intersection of slapstick and tragedy through close readings of Sarah Kane's Blasted, Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, and YouTube videos of people tripping and falling in public. Ian, thanks for coming on the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, first, I gotta ask you about the title, uh, Shakespeare for Snowflakes. Um, I, I saw this title. I was I just happened to be sort of browsing the Zero Books website, and I saw this title, and I thought, man, I hope this is actually about Shakespeare in some way, so that I can talk about him on the podcast <laughs> because I just love that title so much, Shakespeare for Snowflakes. So where's that? Where does that? Uh, where's that come from? Uh, so this came about. It was in uh, twenty seventeen. I was giving some lectures on Shakespeare uh, and some other things, other other plays. Um, and because of the other things that I was lecturing on, um, the lectures arrived with a little content warning for our students. Um, and uh, basically the press got hold of this information and what started as, as quite a small story, I think in the Daily Telegraph first, began to run and run. Um, so it had it kind of had a bit of everything, I think, for the media. It had Shakespeare in there, but it also had snowflake students needing trigger warnings. And so that um, it began to spread quite fast. Um, certainly in the UK, I think it began to be picked up by uh, outlets like Breitbart and Fox in the US. Um, and so one of the one of the phrases, I think, that, that um, began to recur in headlines about this story was Shakespeare for snowflakes with, with a question mark. So I thought um, when I was writing this book, I'd kind of want to take take that title back <laughs> in some ways um, and explain yeah explain where I was coming from with it um, and it helps that it's quite a quite a punchy title you know <laughs> yeah yeah it's you know steal from your enemies when you when you can <laughs> um, I, I think one of the things that's so funny to me about this trope of snowflakes is that it, it, this has become a very common refrain on the right this idea of oh you think you're so special. And yet it's being sort of pervaded by the same people who have insisted on this, like, sort of individualist frame for thinking about absolutely everything. You know, I mean, I can't think of anything, you know, uh, more more insistent on the uh, the in, uh, the special individuality of everybody than, you know, a Thatcherite slogan like there is no such thing as society. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's not like they're, you know, it's it's, it's, it's suddenly the conservatives are the are the, the ideologues of the faceless blob or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I think that's been one of the interesting things. And it's it, when you, as I did, um, begin to explore in different comment threads online. um 
uh, certainly underneath these stories about a content warning being attached to a lecture about Shakespeare, that was uh, a real kind of mud fight between different people of different political persuasions, where people were beginning to accuse each other of hysterical offence, right? So there were, there were right-wingers and left-wingers alike, both citing examples of when right-wingers or left-wingers are offended about things or feel that they have been imposed upon uh, as an individual. Right, because it's it's not like one one group of people has the monopoly on being offended by stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I th- yeah, I think that was... Um, I think that was really apparent. And I think there's, uh, I mean, what, where the book, I think, really tried to explore some of the strategies, I suppose, for diminishing your opponent, I suppose, that their capacity for sympathy, proper sympathy, or um, their capacity to deserve sympathy. That was really interesting. So I, I think one of the interesting things about attacking someone as a snowflake often is to at once register their offense, but also kind of try and say it's in some way bogus or in some way performed. So it's an interest that you kind of register that someone is saying they're an individual, but then you also have to say, but you're not really. So it's, it's actually quite a complex thing goes on when you dub someone a snowflake, I think. And, and you point out in the book, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about the specific content of the plays that you discussed in this lecture as well, but um, there's something very theatrical about this that they're almost casting these uh, university students in a certain uh, in a certain trope in a certain role. Mm-hmm. I think that's um, yeah. I, I think that it's been interesting um, to see. I think there are a few fronts for that battle when you begin to spool through these sorts of comment threads. Certainly, when talking about university students, it's it's interesting how people begin to define the idea of real life and oppose it to universities, that you begin to construct a little stage space full of all these students who are going around doing things that you think are are very funny or very arbitrary or very stupid or very weird. Um, So that's one strategy, I think, that began to to really pop up, is that people were opposing this idea of real life um, to whatever they saw going on in universities. Which is, I mean... uh... You know, I mean, I, I really, I, your book was helpful in me, for me and kind of trying to inhabit this mental space that I find so uh, bizarre of people who think that trigger warnings are, you know, one of the greatest problems facing our society. Because, you know, in fact, in real life, there are trigger warnings. I mean, you go to the movie theater and you see, you know, this movie, I don't know what the rating system is in, in Britain, but, you know, in America, it's, you know, rated R for violence and suggestive content and language. And if you're upset by violence and suggestive content and language, then, you know, either you don't see that movie or you you know that's what you're getting into going into the film. I mean, it's it's not like this is this, uh, this alien idea that you're going to tell people a bit about what they're going to be exposed to before exposing them to it. I think I think that's the thing. Um, and one of the things, uh, and I think I said this at some point in the book, that one of the things that became clear to me talking to students who had experienced sexual assault, so that was that was why the content warnings were there, speaking to some students and their, their accounts about why they found those warnings helpful, it wasn't often um, to give them the option of not going to the lecture. So the students I spoke to often said that actually the thing that was most helpful was that they could prepare themselves for the lecture. Um, and in that respect, a trigger warning or content warning isn't really, as you say, any different from an R rating on a movie. Um, it's just giving someone an idea of what kind of thing they're going to be accessing. Um, 
and uh, yeah and and as as I began to think especially with the lecture the idea of shock rather than say I don't know making an unexpected link um, I couldn't really see any pedagogical purpose to that I couldn't see anything that my students would get out of being uh, or having their agency taken away from them in the course of a lecture like that um, yeah so <coughs> oh, sorry um so given that uh, you know in in any given lecture class you're very likely going to have students who have experienced sexual assault uh, i mean i you know some of the uh, numbers you see are one in four uh women in 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 university have uh been a victim of sexual assault what beyond uh giving a trigger warning do you feel your responsibility as a lecturer is when you're discussing you know works that are that don't just mention sexual assault but sort of, uh, you know, linger uh, to a disturbing degree on, on sexual assault as in uh, Titus Andronicus? I think, that's, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think with that, that notion of lingering uh, is something I, uh, I was trying to puzzle out in the course of, of writing these lectures, giving these lectures, and then thinking about them afterwards. Um, because on the one hand, you want to give a kind of proper attention to a subject, and that proper attention probably does need to linger in some ways on the particularly unpleasant aspects of of how that subject's being presented. Um, on the other hand, um, the, I suppose the problem that that I found, say, discussing I don't know a play like Titus Andronicus and the way in which it might treat sexual assault as this kind of abstract thing or as this kind of uh, artistic trope to be worked around or worked with. The problem with that is that very soon, if you're discussing it, you are doing that as well. Um, and certainly one of the things that I was conscious of in the course of giving these lectures is the fact that in a way I was I was conducting some kind of performance as well. And And once I began to be aware of that, I began to think, here I am, uh, a man who hasn't experienced trauma himself standing behind a lectern saying effectively what an interesting experience this is to, to try and think about and try and analyze. So that balance is, I think really, really difficult. Um, and it's something that uh, it, certainly in the works that, that I was looking at different playwrights were having, were, were finding different ways of, of dealing with that. Um, so something like, uh it in in blasted in some ways that performance was trying to present itself as unintelligible really confrontational really disorientating um and that and that again was was something i suppose that that i could try and tease out while also acknowledging that i was in some ways deconstructing something which wasn't mine to deconstruct if that makes sense yeah absolutely i i happen to read a um a long article about the making of Mad Max Fury Road yesterday. Mm -hmm. Do you know mm -hmm. this film? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and part of the plot is that there are these women who have essentially been being held as sex slaves by this uh, post-apocalyptic warlord. And uh, I, I learned that the director actually had Eve Ensler, the author of the vagina monologues, like come on set and talk to the actresses about like real life sexual trauma. She'd been working with, I think, victims from the Congo. Uh, and this this idea that 
that, yeah, sexual assault is both a real thing that happens in real life and a, 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 a trope in popular culture uh, is, is, is disturbing. Like there's something about that, that, you know, you want to be very careful about how it's being portrayed. And, you know, I think I'd love to hear your opinion about this, but definitely some people have believed that both uh, Shakespeare and Sarah Kane don't treat the subject with the uh, sort of sensitivity that it, that it deserves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's really interesting um, about Mad Max. So the first time I saw Mad Max, uh, I was in Austin, actually, and I was really struggling to cope with the heat. And I told myself that as a treat, I was going to go to the cinema and watch Mad Max, watch a big blockbuster. And it turned out to be a cinema where you could order burgers to your seat while you're watching the cin watching the film. So this was absolutely fantastic for me. I had no idea that this was on the cards at all. Um, and so I just sat there watching Mad Max, um, happily eating my burger and drinking my beer and thinking, you know, this is living. Um, and it, uh, the way I was consuming Mad Max was, you know, like the burger, there weren't any jagged edges for me to choke on that more or less I was thinking, you know, this is a really uh, kind of meaty, decadent film. Um, and I can see in a way that artists, if they, if they are going to put those jagged edges in, uh, for their consumers, for, uh, for their spectators, they, I guess they need to balance that out in some way, um, with wanting to actually have those spectators stay and pay attention. Um, so when Sarah Kane first pops up on the scene, a lot of critics uh, are repulsed by what she's presenting. Um, there's a, a, a critic writing Time Out magazine, I think, that says something along the lines of saying that Sarah Kane will, will soon learn that repeatedly firing a gun into the audience will only lead to dimin diminishing returns. So I guess that's that's part of the challenge for these artists is is how do you actually um, how do you really trouble your viewer while um, while keeping your viewer on the hook in some ways. Right. Because it's this delicate play of, you know, the audience's expectations and then subverting those expectations. But if they come to, you know, you, uh, I, I was reading in the introduction to a collected work of uh, a book of Sarah Kane's collected works, um, this idea that after the first couple of plays, people started to think, Oh, it's another Sarah Kane play. It's going to be so, you know, graphically brutal and violent. And, and, there, there does seem to be an, a kind of diminishing returns in, in, her, in her later work. She kind of, uh, you know, finds arguably more disturbing, but less uh, perhaps visceral ways to disquiet the audience. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I think that's right. Um, uh, in, a, in a book called In Your Face Theatre, um, a critic called Alex Seitz uh, reflects on lots of interviews he conducted with Kane. And Kane talks about that the moment in the production of Blasted, when I th I think the reviews got out there, people started knowing what kind of thing was going on. And she talked about people basically on stag dues, people beard up, turning up um, in the theatre and kind of having a great time in some ways. And and in a way, I suppose the, the issue there was that people began to get a template for where their place was in this theatrical spectacle. Um, and possibly in her later works, it. it it's harder to settle into a um, harder to settle into your seat in some ways, or to locate that seat to know exactly where you are in relation to the action, or, or work out who is who. 
Whereas I, I wonder in Blasted, after that an, uh, initial shock had passed and after the, the kind of paratexts of these performances began to ripple out there, people began to know in some ways what to expect or in some ways began to to decide for themselves how they wanted to react to it, maybe. Do you know if there was any sort of, I don't know, trigger mid-90s version of what a trigger warning may have been on the play? Was there, you know, when you when you went to the, I think it was the Royal Court, wasn't it? Um, you know, do you know if, if there was any kind of, well, if, if you're going to buy a ticket to this play, maybe you should know. Was, do you know if there was any of that? I'm, no, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know certainly productions now, uh, I last went to see a production of Blasted, I think in 2014, and there were warnings all over that. Um, so I'm not actually sure when when Kane gets her warnings. Yeah, I, I, for certain people, just the name Sarah Kane is kind of a warning in itself. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, part of what you talk about that's disturbing uh, about Blasted is this idea of, of empathy. I mean, you know, going back to Aristotle, there's this idea you go to a play and you kind of identify with with the central character. But but Blasted really uh, doesn't give you a lot of good options in terms of identification. You're either identifying with a, a victim of brutal violence, uh, with somebody who is inflicting brutal violence, or with somebody who is first inflicting and then a victim of brutal violence. Uh, is, is that part of what uh, what makes her plays uh, so disturbing and, and perhaps so compelling? I think so. And I think also it's the, it's the real challenge to empathy. Um, so I think this was this is why talking about slapstick and tragedy in, in these lectures that, that first got their warnings and then first got the media coverage, it was slapstick that led me towards Kane because I was thinking there are so many instances where you're looking at bodies behaving in these weird ways, um, these quite alien ways or inexplicable ways. And I think even, even on that, on that basis, it becomes really challenging for a spectator if someone suddenly falls to the floor, they have to very quickly try and supply some reason for that, which isn't given to them by the play. Um, so there's that challenge to to trying to form some kind of empathic response, um, even on a local basis. And then, as you say, the 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 way the play goes in 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 the case of Blasted is that if you form an empathic response. For, uh, in relation to one person, then something awful happens to the perpetrator um, of a rape upon that person who you were attached to empathically. So, so you end up having to try and work out where, who am I trying to understand? Um, who am I trying to sympathize with? So it's, it's a play that really, um, really doesn't, it goes to really great lengths to prevent you um easily feeling what someone else is feeling i think is is my take on it yeah i am um, i also happened to watch recently a documentary about alexander mcqueen the fashion designer um who who's a, a contemporary of sarah Kane's. i mean they're they're both kind of emerging in in britain in the mid 90s um and and he talks of a lot in the documentary about uh wanting to expose what he felt was the ugliness of british society to to his viewers and you know writing about uh or not writing but making making clothes inspired by the brutal treatment of the 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 rebels in the jacobite rebellion and and uh connecting that to britain's history of colonialism at, at a time i mean i i my knowledge of of uh recent british cultural history is is uh is not super deep but my sense is that the mid 90s were kind of a period of of national celebration you know with uh 
Blur going on stage with the draped with the big British flag and you know Blair and 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 all of that. Uh, do you feel like that's there's a there's a social commentary in Kane as well on that level of no actually what's what's going on in in Britain is people are being you know uh, raped all the time and there's there's brutal violence uh, meted out in the in the name of of the nation. I mean, one of the, the, the third character in the, in the trio in blasted is a, is a soldier. That seems pretty hard to, to ignore. Yeah. I think that, um, I mean, I, I was quite young during the, the kind of Brit pop era, but I was a fully, fully paid up member of, of the Brit pop fan club. Um, and, <laughs> and yeah, I'm, I'm probably at that, that distance of age now where I'll look back at it and think, Oh, that was a golden age because I was, I was young and if not good looking, more good looking than I am now. So I look back at that era as, as, you know, that was the peak, not just for the country, but for me. Um, But actually thinking about something that Kane may may have been picking up on. um, I mean, she says at one point in an interview with with Alex Seitz that it it struck her that there was more media outrage about her play, about um, the rape of a woman than about the real life case of a woman being raped. And um, that seems something that, that she was really uh, occupied with um, in, in relation to, her, to how the media was, was perhaps, I don't know, telling stories in, in a particular way. Um, I mean, it's, it's there perhaps also in, in the way people talk about Cain and the, the relation that um, they put her um, sorry, the, the relation they posit between her and more canonical authors. So um, the the quite famous Daily Mail review of, of Blasted, um, uh, when it first premieres, is headlined, This Disgusting Feast of Filth. Um, and it posits, you know, maybe maybe Kane is, is imagining some kind of relation to Shakespeare, to especially something like King Lear. Um, which also depicts atrocity, but it's straightforwardly, um, it's not a flattering comparison at all. It it sees it as quite bogus. So it imagines that Cain will think that she is in some ways riffing off something like King Lear, but in in a conservative, quite reactionary way, that Daily Mail review is is clearly saying, no, Shakespeare is much, much better than this, that there are kind of values in Shakespeare and they aren't there in something like Sarah Kane. so, I mean, as very often, I think, in British culture, Shakespeare is kind of appropriated in that review as, I don't know, the golden standard of things being as they should be or, or the golden standard of what we should all aspire to in some way. Um, so, yeah, it's it's something... I, I think Sarah Kane is, is, is quite careful to try and... Um, Again, to keep to keep her audience disoriented, she says that this is a hotel room in Blasted, um, I think in Leeds, but beyond that doesn't really give us many clues about what's going on right outside the door until suddenly there's a big explosion um, and the world kind of comes barging in. Um, yeah, so I, I think she's she is implicitly... Um, she is implicitly questioning that kind of conservative tendency, that idea that there is some kind of um, stable monolith of culture. And actually in something like Blasted, she shows how volatile that can be, I think. Yeah. 
I think this might be a good place to have you read a, a selection from the book, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, sure. So this is um, from Shakespeare for Snowflakes. It's uh, it's a section which looks back at, at um, some of the analysis of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus um, and also mentions uh, in passing Alice Siebold's memoir, Lucky. Um, so... A slapstick body is dumped on the floor, subjected to violence, emptied out of volition, all by a contriving hand, and all for the entertainment of the spectator. In this light, presenting a rape victim as a slapstick body might not immerse the spectator in the spectacle so much as draw their attention to the patterns of coercion which govern it. Lavinia's eventual death underscores this. Titus, talking to the emperor, raises the case of Virginius, the centurion who killed his daughter, with his own right hand, because she was enforced, stained, and deflowered. He asks Saturninus whether it was well done, and once Saturninus replies in the affirmative, Titus stabs his own daughter accordingly, saying, A pattern, precedent, and lively warrant for me, most wretched, to perform the like. Die, die, Lavinia, and thy shame with thee, and with thy shame, thy father's sorrow, die. Here, as throughout the rest of the play, Lavinia has been obliged to kowtow to the ascetic demands of others. Her singular trauma is absorbed into an artistic precedent, and her volition, already injured by Demetrius and Chiron, is finally taken from her absolutely. She is killed, and her identity is rendered interchangeable with Virginius's long-dead, enforced, stained, and deflowered daughter. Lavinia's body is used as a prop, but also as a site for abstract analysis, comparison, and discussion. By looking at more or less slapstick presentations of sexual assault in drama, my lecture tried to explore the methods by which different playwrights present the bodies of assault victims as resistant, but ultimately subject to the whims of other characters, and indeed to the playwright's own whims. In an ethically questionable way, my lectures were enacting a similar process, transforming the singular experience of being assaulted into a site of abstract discussion, indeed using the examples of assault victims as vehicles for a larger literary critical argument. In its way, this book reaffirms those problems. We have seen how Alice Siebold tried to take back possession of herself by writing a threat on her body. In some senses, an academic argument like this one takes the pen from her and writes, read me on her body, insisting that she's not so much a person as a mesh of abstract and interesting concepts, a textual item to be analysed. Yeah, that's great. So in a way, Shakespeare is doing to classical antiquity what this reviewer claimed Cain was doing to Shakespeare. I think so. I I think that's where I come down on Shakespeare. And it's something it's one of those questions that I often throw at my students with in particular Titus Andronicus, which is to say, is this a critique of uh, literary tradition or is it just a contribution to it? And it's, it's hard with Titus Andronicus. It's written quite near the start of his career. And I think there is... Um, there's a temptation to think this is Shakespeare showing he can he can stand alongside the big boys, um, but there's 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 enough clumsiness I think in the way he presents this I think that he's really inviting us to wonder at what he's doing when he's presenting material like this. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned you know him trying to show that he's one of the big boys because I think that was you know almost word for word uh, a critique of Sarah Kane, right? That she's okay. Well, you've shown that you can you know you can tough it out with the uh, with the rest of these with you know Grieg or whoever else, and now now go down and write a proper play, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting, I think, looking at reviews at the time, um, just how gendered 
It is actually, and how starkly gendered that the, the idea of muscle standing alongside the big boys—that—that—that that, that is, um, that's how a lot of reviewers were conceiving it. I think. Yeah. Um. So, um, do you think there might be some some sense of? I mean, you know, I, I'm I'm a playwright on, and I wrote plays you know when i was very young that that i i understand intellectually what i was trying to do but i do feel like i sort of inadvertently uh contributed to th- you know things i was trying to critique um do, do you do you wonder uh, that question about shakespeare do you wonder if you know the shakespeare of hamlet and lear would look back and say oh titus andronicus uh, not, not, uh, not quite so proud of that one <laughs> or do you think do you think he would have stood by it? I don't know. Maybe this is too much autobiog- autobiographical speculation. <laughs> it's really, I mean, it, it's something that I've I've really wondered about um, in relation to, to trigger warnings and content warnings, actually. So as someone who isn't a playwright and as someone who was an actor to a, to a really limited rubbish degree when I was a student, um, I've, I've, not really had to make these choices about how much I want to shock or challenge um, my audience. And actually it was while lecturing on um, this material once during a playwriting course, there's a master's in in playwriting here in Cambridge at the Institute of Continuing Education. And so I was talking to, to these playwrights about this material. And then at the end presented this, this PowerPoint slide of people commenting about the trigger warnings, saying that this is ridiculous, students are snowflakes, and so on. And for the most part, this is quite a, a liberal-seeming audience who are who are kind of on my side. Um, and then one guy said that he he was from somewhere in the north of England where uh, they would be appalled by Kane. He was thinking of the people that he knew, and he said at one point, "It's it's all right for you because you find this kind of thing interesting." But Kane is is awful. <laughs> I, hate, I hate Sarah Kane, and <laughs> the people that I know would hate Sarah Kane. And and I went away and, and had to think about this quite a lot because it, it was effectively saying how was it that I was saying that a lecturer um, shouldn't shock a student for no obvious reason. And yet I was I was having it both ways and saying, well, if a playwright wants to do it. If Sarah Kane wants to do it, then that's fine because all art is good art. And it, there, there was a definite inconsistency in my position on that. Um, and in a way, I, in a way, I, I, I always evade that question. <laughs> I think and 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 kind of say, I, I get that. I get the feeling that if a playwright is going to do something like that, or if or if any kind of artist is going to do that, then they need to make it worthwhile, I guess. Um, but then, I but then, w- what it is in in the art itself that that says to me personally, this is worthy of of longer attention, um, is is a really kind of wiggly, slippery question for me. Um, with something like Titus Andronicus, it, it benefits obviously hugely from the fact that William Shakespeare's name is on it. Um, and I, and, and I think even within Shakespearean studies, it it doesn't get talked about in the same terms as say King Lear or Hamlet or something like that. Um, and, and that might be because at end people, people don't feel confident enough saying this, this is a deliberate, um, concerted attempt to 
unsettle an audience rather than this is um, repeatedly firing a gun into the audience. Um, yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. But this is a question that that is not unique to Titus Andronicus, the, the relationship of uh, Shakespeare to these problematic tropes. I mean, you know, the debate about uh, Othello, is Othello a play critiquing racism or is it simply a racist play? Or uh, Merchant of Venice, is, is Merchant of Venice critiquing anti-Semitism or is it just an anti-Semitic play? Uh, play i mean the, you you uh maybe a better way to think about this question is in what ways is shakespeare exploring similar questions in titus andronicus as he would later explore in in uh in plays like king lear i mean it's not like it's not like he uh you know he said well i'm going to write this one play about horrifically graphic violence and then i'm going to write great sublime works of literature mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um i th- i think um i was listening to a podcast with james shapiro um the other day and uh james shapiro points out that shakespeare is very good at presenting different points of view on a particular question um when it comes to um an early play like titus andronicus and what i was saying earlier about the, the kind of clumsiness that shakespeare works into the presentation of this violence it does make me think that he's he's inviting our awareness of a ha- uh, a hand making these things happen um, of of actors being made to perform these simulations of atrocity. And I think by the time you get to later plays, um, Shakespeare's doing that with real verve. So in something like King Lear, the fact that in a way, in a massive digressive episode, we're watching the blind Gloucester being led to what he thinks is the edge of Dover cliff and then falling over. And then it transpiring only then that he's just on the flat ground and hasn't fallen as far as he thought and isn't dead as he thought he would be. Um, that kind of clumsiness, I think is, is something that Shakespeare is, is now really running with by the time he gets to something like King Lear, that he's really there saying, look at the manufacturing of this awfulness. Look at what I am making you all sign up for. Um, and as I say in the, the book, that by the time you get to the end of King Lear, this is a uh, spoiler alert, by the way, by the time you get to the end of King Lear and Cordelia is brought in dead and Lear is is imploring everyone who's watching to... Um, to notice that that she's in some way alive, um, that there's a, a feather that that is stirring with her breath, that there's a mirror that is misted with her breath. Um, in in one version of the text, his, his dying words are "Look there, look there," because we've seen the the artifice, the clumsiness, the contrivance of of Gloucester momentarily playing dead on the stage and then just getting back up again. We're really aware by the time we get to Cordelia's death that Shakespeare is really insisting that this happens, that all the other actors other than Lear are just agreeing that this actor is playing dead and she's not going to get back up again. So there's, I, I think 
where Titus Andronicus, that, that kind of clumsiness, that kind of contrivance is happening all over the place. By the time you get to a play like King Lear, that kind of power play over his actors, but also over his audience is really um, being directed to one um, very powerful emotional gut punch at the end of the play. Yeah. And, and Shakespeare throughout his plays is really obsessed with this idea of theatricality and pointing out this is fake, but it's also real in this other way. I mean, it's very, you know, if it, if it weren't written in the 17th century, you'd call it postmodern. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite bits in Antony and Cleopatra is um, kind of at the coming up to her lowest ebb. Cleopatra imagines um, some saucy lictors will bring my Antony drunk and reeling forth. And she imagines that some um, squeaking pipstraw of an actor will one day buoy her greatness. And it's kind of, um, it's just brilliant because (laughs) in the story, Cleopatra is kind of losing now. She's on her way down. Um, And of course we are at that moment, if we're in um, Shakespeare's theater, we're seeing a boy just as she, she said would be the case. Um, playing playing out her greatness but then there's something in it in a kind of very postmodern kind of way which is a massive power play she somehow managed to anticipate forward um hundreds of years into shakespeare's theater correctly you know she's she's called it um so there's there's a kind of wonderful meta theatricality which isn't just its end point it doesn't it doesn't just undermine the story it begins to show again a certain kind of power um over one's own presentation at that point did you happen to see the uh, production of King Lear where Anthony Scherr played Lear? I did. Uh, I saw it at the cinema. So they, they sometimes do live. Yeah. yeah. So I saw it there. And that I loved that production so much. And I feel like one of the things that it was so clever about is just showing how much Lear's inability to continue performing the role of Lear is because he like loses all of his extras and his costumes and his set pieces, (laughs) you know, that it's, it's, it's about sort of the stage managing of power in a way. Yeah. And I think that's something that, um, I I mean, throughout his career, it's, it's something that, that Shakespeare is, is just really interested in. Um, I think of something like the, the Henry the fourth plays, where again it's it's a massive theatrical digression, um, but when Falstaff and Prince Hal take turns playing the king, um, so they they'll use a cushion for a crown, um, and and they'll just take turns playing the king and interrogating the other one. Um, it's it's at once a kind of celebration of of just the theatricality of the fact that to be a king, all you need really is the right props, but then. I feel that Shakespeare being Shakespeare does connect up to something that is sort of more um, kind of essential and kind of thrilling about theatricality. So he isn't just emptying theatricality out of meaning, I don't think. And I think most productions I've normally seen of this, this moment is that when Hal pretends to be the king, there is a kind of thrill because when a prince dresses up as a king, suddenly the magic is is more imminent you know that and and so it's Shakespeare's meta theatricality again it it often isn't its own little trick it doesn't exist for the sake of itself It, it normally is trying to say something about the power inherent to the performance in some ways 
Right. I feel like often when this is discussed, it's it's like this sort of debunking idea of Shakespeare th- meta theatricality. Like he's Shakespeare. He like he believes in theater, right? Like <laughs> he likes theater. He, if he didn't like theater, he wouldn't be Shakespeare. <laughs> um, I mean, it's uh, one of the things. I'm um, now now I've got Henry the Henry plays in in my mind. I mean, one of the the most wonderful exhibitions of that, I think, is is Falstaff, who is simultaneously this um this person who is capable of great imaginative witty leaps um but who is also very much just occupying the stage um and it's something that i always find fascinating is is just how important falstaff's fatness is to shakespeare throughout those throughout those plays so you've got this incredibly funny character um, but in many ways, he is just kind of huffing and puffing and, and moving about the stage and, and, you know, just occupying the stage in front of us. Um, so, it's it, yeah, again, I think it's that fusion of, of imaginative capability, but also very much the, 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 the presence, the very real presence of someone just stood in front of us on the stage. Yeah. Um, so in, in my introduction, I, I mentioned that we'd be talking about YouTube videos of people falling over in public. So I, I don't want to deprive our audience of, of that <laughs> discussion and, and, and give them the false impression that your book is all literary analysis of the great masters. So um, talk about a couple of, of these, you know, these real life examples of, uh, of this slipperiness between, you know, no pun intended, between tragedy and slapstick. The, the discussion of is it Michael Gove mm-hmm. who is uh, slips on paving stones and he was the, the, the conservative education minister or something like that? Yeah. So Michael Gove. Um, this is like a person that a British person would know, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I'm not sure how many people would, would be pleased about knowing about him, but he he's he's a public figure. Um, he has been prominent in, in government for some time now. Um, and as Minister for Education, um, he was, I think it's fair to say, very unpopular with many educational professionals. And he referred often to um, people who opposed or resisted his various educational reforms as the blob. Um, so he, he saw that kind of um, he saw the kind of resistance from people within the prof- profession in, in those sorts of terms. Um and so Michael Go, when Michael Gove is, um, it's in a YouTube video. I, I encourage everyone to watch it. In fact, um, and it's it's footage of Michael Gove walking down Downing Street. I think he's on his way to a cabinet meeting in 2010, and he slips over, and he um, immediately gets up. I think hoping that no one's seen, but there are some journalists and photographers there. And in the footage, you hear um, someone go "way" as he falls over. <laughs> Um, and then someone says, are you okay, sir? And he does right. the thing that you do when you fall over, where he simultaneously tries to pretend he's okay, but he also uh, sort of stiffens his gait a little bit to show that he has been hurt a bit. So it's, it's, he kind of tries to take command a little bit of the situation, I think, by, by saying, I, I, and he smiles. Uh, so it's, it's a way, I suppose, it, it, if it was me, it's a way of um, saying, I'm okay. But I was hurt a bit, so don't laugh too much. But I am okay, and I'm kind of back in control. Um, so when I first saw this this video in 2010, I I think I I was pretty 
much as far as as posting the link into a Facebook status because I obviously found it funny, and then began to think, um, well, this is problematic because I do actually feel sorry for this man and you know, political discussion can't allow that degree of, of empathy. And I thought it would complicate whatever political point I was probably trying to make at the at the time. Um, and then when I came back to it while, while writing this book, um, I thought actually it, it was really interesting to to think about that, to think about what was going on by the fact that this this YouTube video exists even and when you look for it on youtube you'll find um you'll find things like michael gove falls over and over and over (laughs) open brackets close brackets uh sorry open brackets and over close brackets um and things like michael gove falls over 10 hour m&m remix so it's 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 a popular video well what's what's so fascinating to me about this video is it's like not a particularly brutal fall and yet some of the comments are like i wish he died yeah yeah, so, and, I mean, and, and this is like you know, getting to the larger part of the book. This this line between you know what is the kind of falling over, the kind of being hurt that is funny, and the kind that is tragic. You know, it'd be very nice and easy to say, well, if they're really hurt, then you can't laugh. But part of the reason people seem to be laughing at this is that they 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 think he did get hurt, and they're glad that he got hurt, and they wish he'd gotten more hurt. I mean, do you, what's what's going on there? It's, I mean, it's, it's uh, a mess, um, as far as I could say. It's not very insightful to say, as soon as you begin to analyse things on the internet, wow, it's a mess. But um, the, the comments underneath that video um, fall, into, fall into a few different categories. There aren't many, it has to be said, that say, poor guy. Um, there, there are people, I think, who uh, I think read his fall according to how they would conduct that fall. So they talk about it in terms of him trying to reclaim his dignity, and they find that funny. They, you know, they, they, People find it funny because it's quite an intelligible act. Um, and then there are other people, I think, who, who, um, who glory in, in watching this and kind of give themselves permission to, to enjoy his misfortune because they sort of transform him into a not real person. Um, so they say things like uh, um, Michael Gove is, uh, hang on, I had to look this up, is a spermatozoon, um, is a singular, I believe, spermatozoon in a suit um, at one point, or he's he's so slimy it wouldn't have hurt him, or, or things like that. Um, and then there are the people who, I guess they would say that they're driving for another source of comedy with its own extremity if they were to defend themselves. So there, there are some things in there which... Um, uh, are pretty abysmal things to say about someone, um, but they're they're so far fetched that it's almost like presumably they're thinking we now come out the other side of a violent into cartoon violence again. Um, there's one comment there which says something like I I wish he had fallen on an HIV ridden needle I think, which is a. Uh, yeah, a, a really ugly thing to say, and and if they if they mean that is is sort of is grotesque. But, but there is the, a sense that if you get if you get cartoonish enough, it almost pushes it off off the other end, and it's it's back to being not real, right? It's like it's the it's the Godard thing of my movies don't have blood, they have red, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That if you and, go and, so over the top, it's it's okay. Yeah, and I and I think that's um, I think that's there in in some of the comments. Um, and yeah, I think that the, the, the needle one was, was the example that I give in the book of, of 
of that kind of phenomenon that you almost end up with something kind of Tom and Jerry-ish that he would fly up in the air and somehow land on the point of a needle. Whereas there are some others in there, which it seems to me are right in that zone of saying, I want to insist that he has a real body. Um, but I also want violence to, to happen to that body. So there, there are some comments, which are quite a few actually, which will say, I wish he'd broken his neck, which, which is a, it seems as the kind of trauma that, that insists upon, a, a kind of human body um, sustaining damage. Right. It's like, it's, it would be very morally comforting to say, well, these are dehumanizing him, but some of them are actually quite insistent on his humanity while wishing him harm. Do you think part of what's going on here is this kind of punching up idea? The idea that, you know, this, it's not just some guy, it's, it's a very powerful guy who also, you know, seems to be, I, you know, uh, perhaps callously indifferent to the suffering of others that's been meted out by the conservative government. Uh, and so it's okay to laugh at him because, you know, here I am just some nobody and here he is this very powerful person. I, yeah, I, I think some people are making that play. Um, Do you they, think that works? Uh, I mean, I, I suppose what what some of these these attempts are doing in the comments. So there's there's one, I think, that says... I, I I hope he, he broke his neck, got paralyzed um, and was disabled and then had to go and claim disability benefit from his own government. The, the, the point being that his government had, had made loads of cuts to benefits and it would be very hard for him to get benefits from his own government, which which I presume is an effort to kind of weigh his humanity alongside the humanity of of disabled people who, who had struggled to get benefits as a result of his government. And so, so in a way, I suppose, is trying to say those people aren't abstract any more the, than this guy is. So it was, I, you know, speaking as someone who teaches English literature, I didn't think the writing out of that model was, was very sophisticated or very successful. Um, but that seemed to be the argumentative strategy of, of that, that kind of comment. And the other thing that should be said, I think, is that, uh, some of these comments, I, I, I'm aware. I think that when, when I was looking at these comments, that these, uh, I'm, I'm really stretching the idea that you can apply something like literary analysis to them. The the writers probably haven't thought through the what they're doing that as as being something conceptually interesting. That there are some straightforward expressions of of ill will. I think, and I think maybe. In some ways, the idea of, of punching up might give some of those people the, the feeling of a free pass, that, that this isn't a man, this is a, a kind of figure of government, um, which, yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's one of the things that that's becomes increasingly uncomfortable as you go through those kinds of comments. It, that said, I mean, the, um, and, and I talk about this in in Shakespeare for Snowflakes as well, when you begin to, to look through comments on, on something like Breitbart, it, it seems that, that there are very similar strategies which are very much um, uh, performing themselves as punching down, unapologetically punching down. Um, so so in, in the book, I, I talk about uh, um, an opinion column written by a writer called James Dellingpole where he he complains that, that someone left during one of his talks um, which he'd been invited to give by the Conservative Association at, at Cambridge University, and people walked out, and he complains about um, a woman who who left, uh, in his words, visibly distraught. And then when you go through the the comments underneath, um, the comments there 
I guess almost as a game, it seems, begin to circle around that woman and eventually and eventually wish rape upon that woman. Um, so again, I, I don't know whether that's experience for those those people writing comments as, um, I, I, yeah, as I say, as part of a game, as part of a performance. If you punch down hard enough, that in some ways is is part of the fun or part of the right. performance. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about this uh, idea of the very short distance between the most sort of troglodyte racism and sexism of the, the online right versus the, the most cleaned up uh, sort of uh, uh, sanitized version of these same arguments. Um, you talk about a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, um, and, you, and you describe it as being a kind of theater. Could you, could you talk about what's interesting to you about this book? Yeah, so um, it, it's a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, written by Greg Lukianoff and, and Jonathan Haidt. And um, my impression is that, that they are, are kind of flag bearers for, for an interesting kind of argumentative tendency. I, my impression is particularly in the US. Um, uh, so I think Greg Lukianoff is head of an institution called the, um, oh, sorry, the Federation of Individual Rights in Education, I think, FIRE. Um, and we have the, we, these people in, in the UK as well um, who kind of anoint themselves as defenders of, of free speech. And um, Lukianoff and Hype write out this argument, which basically... Um, they, they, as far as I can see, they're they're basically talking about snowflakery, but they 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 confer upon it a, a sort of more academic sounding term. Um, they use vindictive protectiveness, and so for them, things like trigger warnings um, and things like no platforming, um, things like students or or faculty members picking up on microaggressions um, within university context are all are all the same problem they they they're all basically the same um and uh it's it's something that they kind of rail against um and and i think they more or less set out that what they're defending is a particular um a particular branch of liberal humanism that everyone should be confronted with things that are difficult or challenging in order to if they have to debunk them, but but otherwise kind of learn from them and, and you know take them apart. So that that's kind of the the, the premise of, of their book, I think. Um, what's really interesting in in the way the the book is written is that in order to do this, they will will occasionally swerve into the same literary strategies that we've been talking about in in YouTube comments. That that you find ways to. Um, it's not even really to to deprive someone of sympathy. It's it's to deprive them of their capacity to have sympathy. Um, so you begin to talk about people who might be attentive to the needs of others, say, as doing that unthinkingly, doing it sort of automatically, doing it in a in a kind of um, either crazy or automatic. Um, or bogus performed kind of way, um, and so yeah, they they turn um, they turn the performance of empathy a, a few times, I think, into something that is presented as something, if not outright comic, 
in the book. They 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 do present it as something that's unthinking, perhaps a bit stupid. Right. And then this idea of, of, of performativity, I mean, this is connecting back to the, the idea of, of performativity in Shakespeare. Um, they do really seem to mean performativity as being uh, something not genuine, right? Like that seems to be how they understand that term. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think they that's, that's a word that they smuggle in to some of their discussions of, for example, PTSD. Um, so they'll talk, they'll talk about if, if someone has suffered from genuine trauma, then they should seek therapy or something like that. Um, so, so it is, it is something that, um, even while they talk through something like PTSD, they, they, one of the curious things I find about the book is that, um, they, they are, uh, completely open to the idea that people might have mental health crises. And, And one of the things that I find most troubling about the book in a way is that, they they allow for the fact that people um, might be traumatized, but then the the way that they uh, they think people should get over it, it is it seems to me quite a garbled version of of exposure therapy. So at one point they liken um, getting over PTSD to taking microdoses of of peanuts if you have a peanut allergy, which I mean peanut allergies and PTSD. This is my area, but. Uh, they're different, right? Yeah, I don't think they're the exact same. <laughs> I think that's fair. Uh, um, and and then they they do things like saying that cognitive behavioral therapy is is a particularly valuable, important thing to to be aware of. But then they do things like they they provide principles of of CBT in a couple of pages at, at the end of their book, and then they also more or less say that the principles of CBT and the principles of confronting someone with something that might potentially re-traumatize them are kind of the same. So one of the, the, one of the interesting things about the book is it does have this shape of thought through academic, very footnoted kind of arguments, but then we'll make these um, conceptual leaps, which are, are quite dangerous that in my view that, that to analogize PTSD and peanut allergy is, is not helpful. Um, And so when they liken CBT to say me lecturing on the slapstick qualities of rape to potentially a rape victim, th- those aren't the same thing. And one of the curious things I think about the the book as it's written is that one of the chapters begins with a first person account of someone who um, is going through chronic depression, experiences suicidal ideation, and then. As as a sort of writerly technique, then says that they then reveal that that was the first hand account of of one of the writers, um, that they themselves had experienced that. So I suppose again, speaking about it as a piece of literature, what I find really curious about that is is when it comes to talking about um, the possibility of real trauma, the possibility of of real um, mental suffering and, and a mental health crisis. They do switch to uh, inhabiting a first person's perspective, but then when they move to the bigger architecture of how they think universities should be, that's when suddenly we don't really pay attention to the the um, personal individual experiences of all the students that you, of say a hundred in a lecture theatre. Some of them may have been raped. Some of them may be going through uh, a mental health crisis right then. Some of them, their parents might have 
committed suicide that some of them might have been in a car crash last year like that the, the idea that um we can consider them utterly interchangeable is something really troubling and and to write uh individuals as interchangeable doesn't actually get you off the hook i think that it, you still have to think about how you might empathize with people um how you might try your best not to deny individuals agency within um within the teaching room i think this interchangeability question is so fascinating to me i mean i again i talked about this a, a little bit about at the beginning of the interview but I mean, you know, aren't these the people who are always talking about how, you know, sacred and, and distinct every person is and, you know, uh, talking about how, you know, leftists just want to standardize everything? I mean, it's it, this idea. I, I wrote down a quote. It says uh, this is the, the authors of The Coddling of the American Mind. The DSM-3 emphasized that the traumatic event was based not on a subjective standard. It had to be something that would cause most people to have a severe reaction. So they're, they're arguing that there should be some sort of an objective standard for psychological harm. I'm not even sure how that would be possible. <laughs> I, right? I like think it's, it's psychology. Like it's about uh, it's about the individual psychic responses that people have to traumatic events. Like we wouldn't expect that. To, it's not a broken leg. You know, no, it, we wouldn't expect it to be the same for everybody. I, I and I think that's something that um, uh, I, when when I quote the DSM in, in Shakespeare for Snowflakes, I, I point out that that in one of the definitions it, it it does have a kind of inconsistency or it has a problem if you're attempting to diagnose it from the outside as far as i can see again just just looking at it as, as say an item of literature which is which is to say that it's it's something that is causing someone this psychological pain and it's something that happens um after some kind of trauma which which is kind of out of the ordinary which most people um wouldn't um wouldn't experience. Uh, so Lukiana Fant and Height, yeah, they say the DSM-3 emphasised that the traumatic event was not based on a subjective standard. It had to be something that would cause most people to have a severe reaction. So you have this weird transition between most people, so, you know, that how, how on earth do we define that? Um, and then the idea that this is something that, that exists within the individual. Um, how, yeah, how do you, how are we able to how are we able to imagine ourselves into a place where we understand what a trauma is like if most people haven't experienced that trauma? Right. It's asking, this is how most people would react to something most people don't experience, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so again, it's, then, it's completely contingent upon a sort of imaginative, empathic exercise. We have to be able to do that. <laughs> Otherwise, we're not going to understand. Yeah. And then uh, it seems like there's a, a, a further problem of, of even if you could come to that sort of a standard, I mean, why wouldn't we think that some people might be traumatized by things that wouldn't traumatize other people? I mean, even most combat veterans don't experience PTSD, but some of them do. You know, I mean, by, by their standard, you would want to think that, oh, OK, so if, you know, if, if only 20 percent of people who come back from, you know, fighting in Iraq have PTSD, then PTSD is not real or something. I, th I think that was the most... <sighs> It was the thing I came closest to um, when I was when I was spooling obsessively through the comments under the, the media reports about the, the warnings on on this lecture. It was the thing I came closest to um, to creating my own profile for and, and replying to the comments. But then I thought that, that way madness <laughs> lies. Um, right. Uh, and you also, but, you know, you could just publish a whole book about it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll let I'll let this get good and cold, and then I'll serve it back up. But I, uh-huh. I think the um, the thing that that was occurring to me, and I think a lot of people who who were really trying to speak up for the idea of warnings on on these lectures was to say it really doesn't put anybody out, and even if there's just say one person who who would benefit from that warning being on the lecture, then why not have it? And I th- I, th- I I I did find that really hard to understand that logic for lots of people saying that these warnings are are in some ways inhibiting someone's learning experience. It it really doesn't seem to cause anyone um, any you know it doesn't prevent anyone attending. It doesn't prevent anyone engaging with it in a particular way. And and actually the opposite is probably true, and that it probably enables some people to to participate in the lecture better than they would have done. Than they would have done otherwise, I think. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Um, well, thank you so much for being on the program. I, I I found your book so interesting, and and I feel like it's you know probably the best presentation of this sort of an argument I've seen about content warnings in in university classrooms because you know you write as somebody who actually does lecture about quite traumatic things, and you want to be sensitive about that, but you also you know do want to insist that this is a a proper study for uh, literary analysis and and. You, you you very expressly don't want to close off this discussion, but you want to you want to open it up in a more productive way. So I, I found that very valuable. That's that's great. Thank you. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, do you have anything else uh, that you're working on that you'd like to tell us about? Um, I mean, yeah, there are a few there are a few projects here and there. Um, that I if you want to see them in their in their infancy, then I, I do have a website, ShakespeareForSnowflakes.com. Um, so there are a few different things where I'm, I'm kind of thinking about how people translate different kinds of performance into print in some ways, um, how, how print might sort of be one of the media by which we think about things like embodiment and compulsion as well. But um, yeah, that's in its early stages at the minute. All right. Thanks. Well, I'll be sure to check that out.